Hey friends, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church, and this is Kirk. Um, I just got my second cup of coffee and we're ready to head into our second episode for today. Um, And we're going to be talking in this episode specifically about the theme of conquering, or as it sometimes gets translated, uh, like victory or overcoming. We're looking at that theme in the book of Revelation. Um, But also I want to take a look at how it's used in some of the other writings of John to help us kind of see more broadly. Uh, And this is an important theme for us to look at. This is worth dedicating time to study. Obviously, I wasn't able to get into this in super in-depth ways in my sermon on Sunday, touched on it just a little bit, um, but it's worth dedicating time to look at more. Each of the messages to the seven churches closes with this call to conquer. Um, and so you might say that the entire, that the point of each of these messages is ultimately this call for them to conquer. Now that's going to get worked out in different ways. What it looks like for each church to conquer will be a little bit different based on the instruction given to them in their own circumstances. Um, so obviously there's different flavor to each of these messages, but at the end of the day, at root is the call to conquer. And in as much as chapters two and three in these messages to the seven churches serve as an introduction to the whole book of Revelation, they introduce and they situate us to then respond properly to the visions that we will get in chapter four and following. In that way, the call to conquer, you might say, is the call of the entire book of Revelation. You, you could potentially summarize the entire book. Um, it's, it's message to us as this call for us to conquer. Um, and so it's definitely worth us looking at. It's a significant theme in the book. It's a significant theme in John's writing, I, w- I would say. Um, and it also has a lot of practical value and takeaway value for us as we think about the character of the Christian life, the mission of the church, and our own experience that we should expect um, as followers of Christ. So what I want to do is not only look at I want to look at most most of the I want to go through and just survey like every use of this word in John for the most part maybe leave out a couple here and there but um, I want to look at most of it just help us get a survey and then maybe make some observations as we go or maybe make some concluding observations at the end we'll see how it goes but first of all what I want to do is I want to look at this this word how John uses this word in some of his other writings so this word uh, Nikao from where we get the word Nike. I believe it, I believe it, what this word was associated with like a Greek god of victory. So that's kind of where we get this idea of conquering and victory from. At least, at least there's an association there. Um, and so we have that same sort of thing in our, in our culture of like the brand Nike, right? Um, well, this was you, this word is used 17, this verb is used 17 times in the book of Revelation, but it's also used elsewhere. And so let's look at some of these other uses in John's writing. So first of all, for example, in John 16.33, Jesus says that in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome, or I have conquered, same word, the world. And so Jesus here is first of all saying that this idea of conquering is rooted in his own victory over the world. Um, we, as we'll see, that we we ultimately our victory, our conquering is ultimately predicated on His. It's ultimately, um, it's not something that we achieve, but it's something where we participate. We conquer by participating in His own conquering, in His own victory. Our victory is, and you might say, is jumping into His. It's jumping onto the riding the coattails of His victory. And He says, "So, so take heart here. I have overcome the world." 
When we move to 1 John then, 1 John 2, we get this opening poem, if you remember, this poem that introduces the book. And John uses this language of fathers, young men, and uh, children kind of symbolically to represent different, uh, to represent the church as a whole in different ways. He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. Um, he says, I'm writing to you young men, and notice here, because you have overcome or conquered the evil one, the devil, Satan. And then he says to the children, I'm writing to you because you know the father. Or, and now he goes through and he cycles through these, these categories of folks. Again, he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. And then now here, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome, you have conquered the evil one. So again, here, this idea of uh, one of the ways he describes a Christian is someone who is, who's strong, who has overcome the evil one. And he, he associates that here, interestingly, with the word of God abiding in you, that the, the controlling influence and presence of God's word over us seems to be associated with this, um, way, this, this reality that we have overcome the evil one. So we see that Christ has overcome the world. We have overcome the evil one. And then moving on to 1 John 4, we get this passage about testing the spirits. And in verse 1, he says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. All right, so in those first three verses, he talks about there's a spirit of God, and that is the, that is the spirit that would that leads folks to confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And then there is a counter spirit of the Antichrist that animates the false prophets. They deny Christ has come in the flesh. Okay, so you have these two. You have the, you have the, you have the Antichrist spirit that animates the false prophets. And he says in verse four, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. You've conquered them. You've conquered these false prophets animated by the spirit of the Antichrist. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Okay, so we've, we overcome the world. We, we conquer the evil one. We conquer the spirit of the Antichrist animating the false prophets. And then in chapter five, we get a really important passage where this, this word for conquering shows up in different forms four times. All right. So in verse one, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ or that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the father loves who, whoever has been born of him. Okay. So those who are believers have, have been born of God. We have a new nature. We've been made alive. We are children of God. We have his DNA, so to say. We are like him. And so as he loves, we will love all those who are his. We will love, as we love the father, we will love his children. We will love our siblings. Okay, but the idea where we've been born of God, and then he says in verse four, and everyone who has been born of God, this, this radical change of nature, okay, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. We've conquered the world. And this is the, he says in the ESV, it says this is the victory that has overcome the world. It's the same root. So we could translate it this way. And this is the conquering that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is it that conquers, overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? It's by believing in Christ, by being born again, that we conquer the world. And it makes sense too, if you think about it this way, that 
the battle before us, we have, we have sin and we have temptation and we have all these things out before us that would lead us astray, the world before us. The way we conquer those things is by maintaining our faith in Christ, by persevering in Christ, by believing him over and against the claims and the temptations of the world, by trusting in him over against those lies. All right, so that's how the word functions elsewhere in John. Now let's look at the use of the word in the book of Revelation. So first of all, we get a whole bunch of them right away. We can kind of knock out. They all function really similarly, and they come at the end of the letters to the seven churches. So first of all, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, to the church in Ephesus, uh, halfway through that verse, it says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, etc. Okay, 2.11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. All right, that's to Smyrna, to Pergamum in church, the church in Pergamum, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. All right, 226, a church in Thyatira. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. Okay, so there it's paralleled with this idea of persevering with the works until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. All right. And in chapter three, verse five to the church in Sardis. He says to the one, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, this picture of purity. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. All right. Chapter three, verse 12, the church in Philadelphia. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. All right. And then the last church, the church in Laodicea, chapter three, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Okay. So in each of these, we could dive into all the particularities of these and we will in weeks to come. But the general idea is that in each of these, the one who conquers, we'll, we'll have to look at what that means exactly, but the one who conquers is promised these, um, these, uh, the reality of salvation, the experience of salvation that awaits and is fully realized, as we've said in the prior podcast and such, in the new Jerusalem, in the new creation. Okay, so those who respond properly to the message of this book, who keep it, um, to who conquer, as we will look at what that word means in more detail, they will, held out to them, is this invitation and this promise of the final experience of salvation. What's important is that each of these promises um, are things that are then realized and fulfilled in the portrait of chapters 20 to 21, the final victory of God's people. Um, and so that's, that's the first thing we want to notice. All right. And now as we get into more of the body of the, of the book of Revelation, let's see some of these other uses. So 
Uh, the next use comes in chapter 5, verse 5. And this is the vision where God uh, has a, a scroll that no one is uh, has authority to open until the lion of the tribe of Judah appears. And so in verse 5, um, John is weeping. He's, and so that one of the elders says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And what's interesting here, this will be interesting and important to note, this language of conquering, we should, we should, maybe this is a good place to insert here, is obviously comes from its military language. At other times it could be used to refer to like athletic victory, um, like the person who gains victory in an athletic competition, the person who wins in other words. Um, but, but the other sort of, um, domain in which this word was used was that of military. So a battle, you won the battle, you won the war. And that seems to be the idea here is that it's conjuring up the imagery of a lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This is military imagery of, of the Messiah, the military Messiah who would come and he would conquer the, the people who are who are persecuting God's own. Um, he's the one from David's line, a kingly figure, in other words. This is the image of a king, the one promised from David's line from the tribe of Judah, depicted as a lion, a picture of strength. Lions are strong. And this lion conquers. The use of the word conquer in that setting then makes absolute sense. There's nothing weird about that. To speak of the lion, the one from David's line conquering military language. That's exactly how you expect the word to be used. But what's interesting then is then in verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And it's the lamb who then goes and takes the scroll. That what John hears is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but what he sees is the lamb. And so we get this ironic twist of what we would expect in the language of conquering, where we expect conquering to be this military um, imagery of, of, of coercion and power and force, domination over enemies. We actually see the way that our Savior conquers is very unexpected to what that word typically means. He conquers by being conquered, by, by being slain. It's he's as a lamb having been slain. It's actually through dying that he achieves the victory represented in this image as the scroll and the scroll being this image of, 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 of having control over the course and destiny of history. That the way that Christ achieves the full, the, the, the destiny of history culminating in the full realization of God's kingdom, the way Christ has achieved that, that destiny for history is actually by dying on the cross. He achieves the kingdom, not through military strength, but through the oddity of a, of a weakness in dying for the place of his enemies. Not by destroying them, but by dying for them and actually including them as citizens in his kingdom. Okay, so we're already getting, in chapter five, we're already getting hints that this is this is a very interesting um, image used in the book. And it fits what we see elsewhere in the book where, remember, with apocalyptic literature, one of the things is it's shining a heavenly perspective on earthly realities that oftentimes flip what they mean, what they seem to mean to us. So some of the churches are said to be rich, but John says, or Jesus says, you're actually poor. 
Um, and so we, we get, we get oftentimes throughout the book, this sort of ironic twisting of this is what it seems to be with our own eyes, but this is actually what's going on. And so we're going to, we expect to see something similar with this theme of conquering. Conquering typically means sort of domination over your enemies, destroying them. But already we have a flip of that, an ironic twist that the way that our savior conquers is actually by, you might say, being conquered. All right. Our next passage, um, the next time this shows up is 6 verse 2 where the rider on the white horse is said to conquer. So that one, and that that's one of um, the four horsemen that issues God's judgment. That use seems a little bit different, so we'll skip over that one, but just so you're aware of that. Let's go to chapter 11 now. The next one comes in chapter 11 verse 7. And this is where we get the image, the vision of the two witnesses. Okay. And these witnesses are described as lampstands, two lampstands. So this is clearly based on how John has used that imagery of lampstand before to represent the church. This is clearly a picture of the church's witness. So not like two literal people in the future. Um, that's a popular interpretation. Um, so it's just worth kind of noting that that's not how I, w- I would take this passage, but this is talking about the, the role that the church has as a witness and a missionary people. Okay, they are the lampstands. They are the light of the world. Um, all right, so then we get to verse 7, and it says, And when they have finished their testimony, they've finished giving witness, the beast that arises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, and notice the word here, and will conquer them and kill them. Okay, so here the word conquering is not something that believers are said to do or something that Christ is said to do, but it's something that the beast is said to do. The beast actually conquers believers. And so the idea of Christians conquering does not mean that we will never face hardship. It does not mean that we will never be conquered. Um, the book of Revelation clearly has the idea of persecution in it um, and hardship. Okay, But here we see that the beast is conquering the church in some sense. Does that mean that the church isn't conquering? Is this is this the church's failure to conquer when it is conquered by the beast? Well, let's continue and look at some other passages. Chapter 13, verses 5 through 7. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over, given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So again here, same idea. The beast conquers the saints. All right. And then also, I'm skipping over some uses here. We're going to 15. We'll backpedal. We're going to chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. They sang the song of Moses, etc. So here we see that those who had been conquered by the beast are nonetheless said to have conquered the beast. That in some, again, just like Jesus, the, the way we saw in chapter 5 with the, the lion lamb, a sort of twisting of what we expect. I think that's what we see going on here. That although believers can be physically, economically, according to these, the way we see things with our own eyes in this earthly perspective, believers can be conquered, quote unquote, by the beast. 
by military systems, by economic systems, what have you, the systems of this world that embody rebellion against God. Although we can be conquered by such things, if we are faithful, as we'll see in some of these other passages, if we are faithful through that, faithful even unto death, it is actually by being conquered that we achieve our own victory, that we actually conquer. All right, so look, this is illuminated by the use in chapter 12, verses 10 through 11. So we skipped over this, but I think this will make things clear. This is probably the most important use of this word, I think, in the book of Revelation in terms of understanding what it means. So chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come have come for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down. Satan has been thrown down in the previous vision or the previous uh, description of this vision. Um, He accuses them day and night before God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by Christ, by what Christ has done, by riding on the coattails of Christ's victory. They have conquered Satan and Satan is no longer allowed to accuse them. They have conquered, so again, picking that up, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now, I, I, I suppose that could be taken in different ways. It could be either by their own testimony, by constantly giving testimony to Christ and being faithful in their witness, or it could be by holding fast to the, to the, the testimony of Christ. Um, but either way, I mean, maybe there's other options. I, it would be interesting to study that a little bit more. But either way, what we see here is that they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They loved their lives. They loved not their lives, sorry, even unto death. So the idea here is they were willing to be faithful to Christ even at the cost of their own lives. They put their they put their dedication to Christ, their faithfulness to Christ, their trust in Christ, their love for Christ over their own love to preserve their lives. They love not their lives even unto death. So I think that helps us understand what it means to conquer is this idea of this, what we see elsewhere in the book is this call to faithful endurance. That's, that's another word that gets picked up at pivotal moments in the book. What So the con- the idea of the call to conquer is almost like a metaphorical expression of what the book is calling us to do. But when we get a very more, a more literal description of what we're actually called to do, the book uses this lang- language of patient endurance, this idea of continuing to trust in Christ even to the point of death. And in the book of Revelation, if you're familiar with John and we think of John in the in the book of 1 John, he's oftentimes it's he, he deals with very sharp and clean categories. You're either a children, you're either a child of the devil or you're a child of God. You're either in the light or you're in the dark. Dark. Everything is stark, either this, either that. And I think similarly here in the book of Revelation, John oftentimes portrays the faithful Christian as like almost as if it's obvious they will be a martyr. So it, I don't think that implies, though, that like the only those who are actual martyrs actually conquer. I think what John is saying, what John is assuming here in sort of these clean-cut categories, is that in principle, all of us should be willing to be martyrs. The nature of what it means to conquer, to actually have faith in Christ, to trust in Christ, to not love our lives to the extent that we would be willing to preserve them. In principle, we've already, faith entails, in other words, in principle, 
already a commitment to be a martyr if it was so demanded of us. We may not actually have to be martyrs, but the idea that Revelation seems to assume, it seems to speak of the faithful Christian in martyr terms because it almost assumes like that's where it would go naturally if you were faithful in this hostile world. And so I would say like in principle, that's where we all ought to be. That's what faith entails in principle. Commitment to Christ in principle entails um, the potential martyrdom of all of us, whether or not our circumstances would demand it. And so I think that's illuminating for this idea of conquering. This is this idea of patient endurance, holding to faith in Christ. Another um, use comes in chapter 17, verse 14. Um, it says that they will make war on the lamb and on, and the lamb will conquer them. So here it's talking about Christ conquering the kings um, associated with the beast. And then finally in chapter 21, verses 5 through 8, um, and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my people. So at the very end of the book, when we get this, this introduction into the portrait of the new Jerusalem and the new creation and the ultimate um, realization of God's kingdom brought to bear on earth, the one who inherits these things, the one who has these things as his heritage, the passage says, is the one who conquers, the one who actually responds and keeps the words of this prophecy, maintains their faith in Christ. All right, so those are all the uses in the book of Revelation that we've surveyed as well as elsewhere. So let's make some concluding observations as we tie all this together. So again, the first thing is that this is battle language. This is the language of war. Um, it could be athletic victory, but oftentimes it's used in the military context. And that seems to be the case here because what do we get in the book of Revelation but a picture of a cosmic battle, the war of the saints, we have the picture of the 144,000 depicted as the army of God, um, this battle between um, the saints who are called to conquer over against the beast and the forces of darkness. A lot of the book is just built with this sort of war imagery. And what that means we should just first kind of takeaway is that we should recognize this language assumes that there is a battle being fought. Um, the Christian life is a battle. It is not a vacation. It is not coasting. But we are up against a battle. We are in a battle. And that is a, a helpful way. This language of conquering is a helpful way then to, to make sure we, re, we are remembering that, that the nature of the Christian life is a battle. Okay. Again, uh, as we saw, is that it is a battle. And this, this language of conquering is there. But it's it's twisted and flipped in an ironic sort of paradoxical way that we conquer in an unexpected way. Um, and again, as we saw that apocalyptic literature is trying to shine a light of heaven's perspective on earthly realities. And oftentimes when it does that, it flips things in, in a way that we don't expect. And so the, one of the best examples here is how the beast is permitted to war against the saints and to conquer them. And yet, on the other hand, um, it's actually by being conquered that Christians conquer. 
It's by being faithful unto death and being conquered that they conquer. And so on the one hand, we can speak of Christians being conquered. And on the other hand, the book can speak of uh, when Christians are martyrs, when Christians die, when Christians are faithful unto death and persevere in their faith, um, held out to them as they have conquered is the promise of ultimate salvation in the new creation in the new Jerusalem. So we can simultaneously be conquered and yet in that uh, in that very con- being conquered, we are conquering and receiving blessing. And so by being conquered, we actually experience blessing. So an ironic twist. Uh, one, one writer says, thus the apocalypse presents the people of God ironically as conquered conquerors who experience present suffering and defeat yet await ultimate victory. And as we saw, Christ is the model of this ironic conquering. He is the, he is the lion, the conquering lion who conquers by being a slain lamb. And so the nature of this conquering then is, is not a matter. Get this, believer. The nature of our conquering as the church, as the people of God is not a matter of military might. It is not a matter of political influence, but it is enduring faithfulness to Christ and his world and conquering over the forces of sin and evil in that way. Um, and so according to chapter 12, verse 11, again, it is by faithfulness to Christ. And martyrs, as we saw, are sort of emblematic of the faithful. They demonstrate what, what, in, what in principle we've all committed to. They, they, they demonstrate all, like where it can ultimately go if, if the situation is dire. And as we saw in 1 John, this fits what we see in 1 John, where 1 John talks about our conquering over the evil one, our conquering over the world, um, our conquering over the spirit of the Antichrist. And how do we do that? It is by believing. It is by trusting in Christ and, and rejecting the lies of this world um, and holding fast to Christ. And so that is the, the nature of the conquering here. And how is this victory as we saw? So even as we are conquered, because the death of believers ushers us into victory, that is how even death can be conquering. So faithfulness in our faith, persevering in our faith, is thus conquering despite what our earthly circumstances, whether that's poverty, suffering, or even death, might indicate. Um, Because ultimately what is held out to those who conquer in chapters 2 and 3 is the promises that we find in chapters 20 to 22 that these promises function as incentives and, inv- and an invitation for, for embattled believers to persevere and follow Christ and receive the inheritance in the new creation. And so you might ask, well, in wrap up, what is, what are we to conquer? What is the object of our conquering? What are we conquering? As we saw in 1 John, it's, it's this idea of overcoming the world, overcoming the evil one, overcoming the antichrists. And this is exactly what we see in Revelation then. Um, that you might describe the world as the, as the category for what we see in Revelation. Um, the idea is quite similar. We overcome the threats outlined in the book of Revelation, which we might call the conditions and players of this cosmic battle of the world. And I would also say that as we see in the opening chapters of two and three with the, the situations we find in each of the churches in Revelation, that we also conquer by conquering and battling our own sin that would lead us towards the idolatries outlined in the book, the compromises that are um, the landmines, we might say, throughout the book.
All right, so what are some takeaways? Um, first of all, as we said, this motif communicates that we are in a battle. We are in a war. And we should approach the Christian life with that expectation. Not to coast, but to fight, to be on guard. Second of all, um, I think oftentimes, especially where we are situated in our American context, we can, we can kind of see the battle before us. We can, or we see sort of the, the nature of where our culture is heading and things like that. And we can kind of see the, the, we can feel sort of the dangers that are swirling around us or what have you. And there can be this sense of desperation where we want to grab onto whatever power is available to us and whatever we can do in order to preserve ourselves. Um, but what we see in the book of Revelation is that faithfulness, even faithfulness to the point of losing, is to be valued over preservation by means of coercion and power and compromise. Ultimately, witness is a priority over preservation, over self-preservation. And it's actually through weakness and suffering. It's okay for us as the church to lose because the greater victory is when we maintain our faithfulness to Christ. That is ultimately how we conquer. And actually, we do a service to our surrounding world when we prioritize our faithfulness over trying to grab onto means of our own preservation. Because it's actually, as the book seems to indicate, it's actually by suffering in this way that we accomplish our witness. As, as Revelation chapter 11 in the image of the church's witness shows us, the, the one of the ways that those two lampstands, those two prophets witness is by being conquered, is by suffering. And as Tertullian, one of the early church fathers said, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's something that we see throughout church history is that actually where we might think our, our, incl- our inclination might be, well, well, we got to do whatever we can in culture and in society to, to avoid suffering and to avoid um, like us losing influence or, or what have you. And I'm not saying that we should like that we shouldn't care about those things. We obviously should care about religious liberty and, and peace and all those things. But at the end of the day, um, we need to prioritize our own faithfulness, even if it means that we quote unquote lose. And what we've seen throughout church history, where I was going before, is that um, the church, when it's in those dire situations, we think that sometimes we have to preserve ourselves in order for the church to be able to carry on its mission. That if we lose religious liberty, if we if we lose lose our influence or what have you, the church's mission is going to be hampered. But what we actually see throughout church history is that the church tends to explode with evangelistic influence when it is a suffering church. That part of our witness to a suffering Christ is stepping into that mold ourselves um, to to reflect the very nature of that gospel in our own lives. By being a suffering people who who prioritizes faithfulness over our own preservation. And this is our victory. By doing this, John says that we are victorious. So here's the great thing, that even when we lose in certain respects, even when we lose, it is through this, when we are faithful, that victory is won. Victory is guaranteed to us. We can lose even at the cost of our lives And John says that when we are faithful to Christ, when we hold our faith to Christ, we ultimately have victory. It is, it is guaranteed. And so we can enter into these spheres without a sense of desperation, 
but knowing that the victory is sure. We have hope, and so we can enter into the mission of our of the church with a posture of confidence. And all this comes by trusting in Jesus. He is what empowers us by trusting in him and by rejecting the lies and the, te- the temptations of the idolatrous world around us, we have victory. We are empowered for patient endurance. All right, that concludes our time today. Uh, be sure to tune in next week as we get into the letter to the church in Smyrna. Again, if you have questions about anything in the book of Revelation or anything that we mentioned in our sermons or these particular passages, feel free to reach out to us and let us know. We'd love to include your thoughts and your questions in our future episodes. All right, till then. Thanks.